0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess. For elite athletes only
3: And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well,
4: how did I get here?
2: And welcome back to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. My name is Travis. I got my brother Quentin with me today. And that was, of course, Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. The song that everybody has heard. Q. 130 million plus plays on Spotify. That's how big of a single that was.
5: Dude, I could listen to that song, I think, every day. Multiple times a day for the rest of my life, and I would never tire of it.
2: It's a great song, no doubt about it, and 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 definitely one of one of their like standout like signature songs, right? There's a handful of of Talking Heads songs I think everybody's familiar with. Psycho Killer's one of them. This is one of them. Really, if you think about it, those those are the two that are standout, right? That that I think everybody has some familiarity with. But aside from that, like you really got to hit play on all of their records to hear all the gems because there are it's nothing but gems, dude. Nothing but great songs on every single Talking Heads record, and today we are talking about "Remain in Light," which came out in nineteen eighty. That is the album that "Once in a Lifetime" was featured on, and one of the reasons I wanted to play it as our intro song was because it sounds so different than than the songs that I'm that I'm bringing to the table today. And that's the song that everybody thinks about, right? But like surrounding that song on this record are some of the most like genre blending like experimental
5: rhythmic songs that you've ever heard ever (laughs) get ready man this is a great record believe it or not dude i haven't actually listened to this album at all and
2: that's dude i can't tell you how excited that makes me i love it when this happens
5: i know isn't it great yes so yeah i'm i haven't been this excited for an episode in a while uh so we covered talking head 77 I don't even remember how long ago that was, dude. But it was an
2: early, early episode. I went back and listened to it. We were young pups, dude. We were we were young, <laughs> still green, um, podcasting amateurs, you know.
5: And so, so when did that one come out? Oh, <laughs> Came out in seventy-seven. Q. Didn't I do that on the episode? Probably, probably. That um, was not a joke. I was, um, yeah.
2: <laughs> it is called Talking Heads seventy-seven, <laughs> um, and that so, will, so that's what um, Psycho Killer was on that record. So, you know, that was their first big, big hit, right?
5: And we did our, our throwback, uh, rewind episode on television's Marky Moon last week. And they all came up together with talking heads and the Ramones and Blondie and CBGB. Yeah. In the late seventies, they were all there at the ground floor.
2: Right. And, and I think I actually said this on the intro last week and I said it on the 77 episode that we did. Talking Heads first show was opening for the Ramones in 1975 at CBGB which is amazing, right? Just that sentence alone is amazing. It's crazy to think about. But yeah, you know, this is the the new wave post-punk um, group of artists that sort of like introduced the term, or at least let's say that the term was coined to describe this type of stuff that Talking Heads was doing, the type of stuff that Television was doing, right? where it 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 wasn't punk really you know it was it wasn't uh the more traditional like classic rock type stuff so they just called it new wave you know hey this is the the next wave of rock right we don't really know what to call it post-punk i guess because we're out of the punk era
5: it was those simple punk sensibilities but like minus the power chords you know, like they introduced more... More jangly guitar type stuff. Yeah, jangly guitar. There you go.
2: Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that you heard on Talking Heads early stuff, like their first record. So yeah, if you want to hear us talk about kind of the how, how these guys formed and like their origin story and stuff like that, go back and listen to the Talking Heads 77 episode. Um, we're not going to rehash all that stuff. We're, we're going to talk mainly about this record and what led to them making it and why it sounds so different. And then we're just going to dive into some amazing tunes. So they put out a record called Fear of Music in 1979. And after that record, the band kind of had a falling out, basically. You know, they basically, you know, burn David Byrne. David Byrne, <laughs> as if I have to say the first name. David Byrne um, went off with Brian Eno and put out this, this record together called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. It was kind of like a solo record, but like Brian Eno's name is featured on the record, right? Um, they actually recorded it um, and, and we're done with it. it. It didn't come out until 1981, funny enough, but he had went off and done that and basically um, kind of like Sonic Youth, who we're going to talk about next week here. There was a marriage in the band, um, Tina and Chris. So Tina Weymouth is the bass player mainly. Chris France is the drummer. They were married and they were kind of you know working on their relationship kind of thing. They they went on vacation together basically. And like they started to um basically they went to the Bahamas and just kind of stayed there and became involved in Haitian voodoo religious ceremonies. Oh my, practicing native percussion instruments and stuff like that. Dude, just in time for the satanic panic of the 80s. They were yeah, on the ground floor did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the, they got to know this, this, um, this the, basically the the rhythm section of this um, reggae band called Sly and Robbie, who were kind of you know playing in the Bahamas and stuff like that.
5: So they all had other things going on. Yeah, things basically that were a little more exciting and took precedence over the band.
2: Yeah, because they, you know, it, it seems like David Byrne is kind of a dick. I don't think that's a, a new thing for me to to say. Like that's pretty well known about him. Hard to get along with. Um, basically, uh, one of the band members. I don't remember which one, but I read a quote that he was like, "David is basically incapable of returning friendship." Oof. That kind of person, right? Ouch. Anyway, so yeah, basically, David. It, it was kind of this thing where he was tired of of being of taking on the uh, responsibility of of being like a front man basically uh and and the band sort of like acknowledged at the time that like you know we don't necessarily want to be just david byrne's backing band you know what i mean right like the guys that just stand behind david byrne
5: well it's not like um, they
2: it's not like they went by david byrne and david byrne and the talking hands yeah and the talking hands right but i guess there's just the way that you know i mean david byrne is such a charismatic dude like he's a yeah an amazing front man obviously
5: Well, real quick, dude. I'm just curious because I haven't heard this album that he put out with Brian Eno. Because Brian Eno, you know, his legacy is his ambient music, right? Was that the kind of stuff they were doing?
2: No, but like, um, it was it was like synth type stuff, electronic type, um, kind of playing around with early electronic sampling and stuff like that, or not not even sampling, but like, uh, you know, synths and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, which kind of plays into the sound of this record too. But anyway, so Tina and, and Chris, they're on vacation in the Bahamas. They're sort of like, you know, experimenting with some, some uh, percussive instruments and stuff like that, doing things that they, they, they're not used to doing. Obviously Chris is a drummer, but anyway, they decided to, to purchase an apartment above this uh, recording studio in the Bahamas. And um, it's actually the same studio that they recorded their second album at uh, more songs about building and food. Uh, so anyway, Byrne actually joins them at the studio, uh, and they start to like piece together this music and stuff like that. And so basically it sounds like Byrne was like willing to, to, to come to the table and sort of put, put aside the issues that they were having. And, and as he said, um, he says that he was tired of, um, the notion of, of a singer leading a backup band. So he kind of agreed with them and, um, the ideal that they were aiming for with this record was sacrificing egos for mutual cooperation. So there you go. And that's, you know what? I bet every band, every band probably goes through through this kind of cycle, especially when you have a really charismatic front front person, right? There's got to be some kind of sit-down meeting yeah. like that with a lot of bands. Especially when you have a really big ego at the front of it, right? So anyway, um, you know, he went on to say that he wanted to escape the psychological paranoia and personal torment that he had been writing and feeling while in New York. So, like, basically, he needed to escape New York, right? John Carpenter. And so he, um, (laughs) (laughs) he, well, what better place to do that than the Bahamas, right? So, anyway, they start, they start kind of jamming together, basically. And that's what this record is all about. It it all stems from jam
5: sessions, which is really cool. I think it's cool. I, I noticed that they all get credited for percussion on this one. Right. Exactly, that's right. Q. Let me let
2: me let me finish up the roster here because I said three of the four members. Jerry Harrison uh, is is the guitar player. But yeah, like you said, every single one of these members are credited as keyboards, percussion, backing vocals. Byrne uh, has a bass guitar credit, but that was the whole idea behind this. It was more of a collaborative effort and stuff like that. And one of the key key parts about this is that. A lot of them, they were sort of listening to this very well-known um, Afrobeat musicians, particularly this guy named Fela Kuti, which that that name rings a bell. We may have mentioned him on the podcast before, but um, but anyway, so let's listen to a song here. This is not the first song from the record, but this is kind of a cool a cool story here. So while they were starting to like piece this record together and stuff like that. They had a song that they used as like a jumping off point for jam sessions and stuff like that. And it's actually a song from their last record, Fear of Music. So we're going to play a song called I Zimbra. And again, this was off their 1979 record, Fear of Music.
5: a little taste dude yeah but that's all you really need to hear and i forgive me i was not paying attention so did did these recordings kind of happen around the same time as remain enlightened that way so they were already kind of flirting with the idea of doing this more cooperative kind of effort yeah and they started doing that in that in that studio it's called compass point
2: studios in Nassau in the bahamas so they started putting together demo tapes and stuff like that and they wanted it to be this like this jam session type collaborative effort. And so they used iZimbra as a starting point because it's got that sort of like rhythmic, sort of um, percussive type template to go off of, right? It's almost got like that reggae rhythm. Right, exactly. And so the interesting thing about this, I mentioned Brian, you know, before, he was actually ready to move on and and not produce the next record because he, I don't know, I guess he, he, you know, I think they had similar... Falling out, type moments with him too, but uh Burn showed him some of the some of the demo tapes that they were putting together for, from this new sort of like mentality that they had and approach, and suddenly he was interested again. So basically, he he liked hearing he liked what he heard so much on the demo tapes. He was like, you know what, maybe I can do another Talking Hands record. You know, this sounds like it could be kind of fun because it's a whole different approach to the way they wrote music and stuff like that. And so. They get Brian Eno back in, and the way that they put it, he's basically the fifth member of of the band for this record. Like he was such a contributing factor to it.
5: That's really cool, dude.
2: And some of his techniques and, and his approach and stuff like that were were key to the the success of this record and the, like the sound of the record and stuff like that. But yeah, so Eno, you know, you uh, know, he he compared the creative process for this record as looking out to the world and saying, "What a fantastic place we live in. Let's celebrate it." All right, so let's jump into the first song here, Q. Um, hopefully I painted a picture because it's about to go to go to 10. <laughs> so strap in. You're not cranking it to 11, dude? 11, the next, the, the second pick is when we go to 11. Okay. All right, so I'm going to play the very first track off the record here. And uh, I really like the way this guy put it. This was a um, an article that um, this guy named Jeff Tarek wrote for this publication called treble media he said the energy of this song feels like it could power the planet for days all right the song q is called born under punches the heat goes on
5: no words dude (laughs) uh it is hard to know where to begin and you can just like picture them i wonder if they recorded it live you know because it very much feels like they're all in one room playing off of each other during this and i love how how david byrne kind of seems like he he backs away during the chorus and just kind of like chimes in every now and then yeah just kind of adds to the chorus a little bit
2: yeah, so he's he's you know he's taken on this persona of this this government band that he's talking about, um and so like you're hearing you're hearing that that person that person's perspective right and it sounds like he's very like exasperated and kind of like frustrated with his lot in life like from the I, I love the way he's sort of like grunt not grunting but like um yelling like like I said it sounds kind of like, kind of like he's exasperated you know I love that line where he's like uh said don't you miss it some of you people just about missed it i love that line the way he delivers it just it's just great but yeah so um apparently the testimony uh from the uh, of the watergate scandal conspirator john dean uh was one of several inspirations for the lyrics on this record probably this song born under punches this is also a callback to to a song from the first record. Called "Don't Worry About the Government," so yeah, like you 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 know, and you're also kind of hearing this um this this delivery that that isn't entirely new for for Byrne, but he's kind of like talking the lyrics right, and he yeah they, he didn't do that before um like I said it's not it's not new to him, but like okay. you hear that 100% in Once in a Lifetime. and That was one of the new like kind of the cool new things that he he did in Once in a Lifetime that he started doing on this this record more like prominently because. They they were inspired by what was happening with like early rap music and and stuff like that. Amazing, which was happening around this time, right? And in the same place too. And in the, around the same place, right? in New York. So, uh, you know, they were taking on all these new new sounds. They were they were trying to incorporate like sort of like these African polyrhythms and stuff like that, which you don't necessarily hear in this song, but you'll definitely hear in the next song that I'm going to play. But yeah, so what's interesting the the sections, right? And, and the um the rhythms and the melodies and stuff like that, that you hear in the background that feels like they're looped, right? Mm-hmm. Uh so now is that is that Eno at work? E- yeah. But basically the the recording process for the the bass instrumentals, right? Like what you're hearing in the background, stuff like that. Was long overlapping loops of repetitive rhythms long before like there were tools around to to do that kind of thing, right? What we refer to now as sampling, right? Right. And so the way that David even referred to it as, like, they were human samplers. So they would just kind of play these these rhythms and stuff like that over and over again to create these loops, and then they would just sort of play them back.
5: Those are really interesting, like, time signatures and stuff, too. Like, so that's that's impressive, man.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the things that, that stood out about this record is the really complex song structures and stuff, right? So let me just pick it up again real quick. I'm going to play it because I wanted to get to the guitar solo. There's a really cool guitar solo in the song. So I'm going to play another clip here from Born Under Punches. Here we go. So anyway, that guitar solo is, is pretty dope, right? Yeah, man. That's actually this guy named Adrian Bellew that they brought in to the recording sessions. Uh, and that was a Roland guitar synthesizer that he did that solo on. What? So Adrian Bellew went on to join King Crimson as their guitar player shortly after he was done with this. He also went on and, and toured with them, too. But anyway, that's, that's pretty cool, right? You'll hear him in the next song, too. That explains a lot. Yeah, but I, I love, kind of like you were saying. Like, the melody and the singing comes from the background vocalist on this track, and David is just either sort of telling the story from the perspective of this man, or he, he just chimes in. Or he's just making weird noises in the background,
5: too. Like, you heard it at the end of that second clip there. I'm sure they all are contributing to that, dude. No, that's all David. That's all David making those weird noises oh, with, yeah. his, with his mouth? Yeah, okay. you can tell, dude. <laughs> I'm not certain. You're, you're a bigger fan than I am, so. Yeah, you can tell.
2: You can tell. But yeah, like he's, it almost sounds like he's just like kind of losing it, right? Like in the background, like he's he's making right. like almost like hiccuping sounds and stuff like that. Like he's this drunk, beaten down, like government man, right? Anyway, I just love
5: it. What a great song. What an awesome opener for an album too. Yeah, no kidding, man. Can you imagine putting this on back in 1980? You know, like it, it probably changed your entire life.
2: Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it, dude. Like, I mean, this this album is so significant that um, the Library of Congress added it to the National Registry in 2016. Cool. And they interviewed David. Um, and so I actually have a quote here from that interview. He says, we were listening to African pop music such that was available like Kuti and King Sonny Ade and some field recordings, but we didn't set out to imitate those. We deconstructed everything as we began to use the process described above, and then as the music evolved, we began to realize we were in effect reinventing the wheel. Our process led us to something with some affinity to Afrofunk, but we got there the long way around, and of course our version sounded slightly off. We didn't get it quite right, but in missing, we ended up with something new. So, I wanted to play a Fila Kuti song, before we play this next song off the record because it it's like it's just so obvious, right? Once you hear the two. Awesome. So anyway, I'm gonna play a song here from the record Aphrodisiac. Came out in nineteen seventy three by Phila Cuti. And this song is called Echo Ale.
5: fucking awesome dude that reminded me a lot of uh that band amenez that we featured on this show a while back is that zamrock yeah uh it's happening in, in zimbabwe and like yeah at the same time dude um so this was like more of the the funky side of that but yeah dude really cool and also another
2: band if you kind of if you like that kind of stuff Uh, We we talked about them, and I I featured a track from them, too, as a sidetracker or a heard or something like that. But it was the band that was um, featured on the Foles Antidote record, uh, Antibalus.
5: Oh, the horn section.
2: Antibalus, yeah. So that's the the Antibalus Afrobeat Orchestra. Also puts out stuff that that is this, right? Um, But anyway,
5: let's take a quick break.
2: So, hearing that, let's go to the next track here that when I say that this song blew my mind, Q, the first time I heard it, I'm not kidding. Well, my mind has already been blown, dude. Well, get ready, dude. This song is amazing. And it's something that you read over and over again when you read reviews, they even talked about this and um, the, the entry into the Library of Congress is that like there's so many things happening on this record that you know each time you listen to it, you're gonna hear something new. So I can tell you right now, dude, this song that I'm about to play, you gotta listen to it like over and over again to to, to keep appreciating how amazing it is. Because there's a lot that comes at you right at the beginning, and it's you're like, whoa, whoa what do I listen to here? What whoa, what do I focus on? All right. So anyway, here we go. So this song is called "The Great Curve." <laughs>
5: been what 31 years (laughs) i still don't think music has caught up to them dude that's how far ahead they were
2: yeah and and like i was actually reading i'm gonna quote that dude again if i could find it um he wrote that retrospective on the on the record um but this guy kind of makes the point about like record labels just don't they, they won't take risks like this nowadays they won't give a band the money and the time, and like the the ability to, to to experiment and come out with something like this, like they just won't do it.
5: Yeah, they won't allow that creativity.
2: Yeah, because it is a risk to 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 let a band do something like this. But like you know, we're missing out. We're missing out on great great stuff like this if you don't give. And that's why you know indie indie record labels exist, right? To to do stuff like that. People can put out music independently themselves right but yeah the level of musicianship required to, to do this is you know it's it's hard to to match that right
5: with like the cascading kind of uh, it's
2: just layers and layers yeah
5: they were all singing different parts right
2: exactly exactly and you heard a bunch of stuff right a lot of instruments beyond just the uh, the main players right even though like like I said earlier like they all they all played keyboards and percussion on this record. But they brought in a bunch of other musicians, so that was Andrew Bellew again on guitar with that badass guitar solo. That you want to talk about like an un, underrated guitar solo, you know?
5: Yeah, that was that was out of nowhere. That was awesome too, man. It's a ripper,
2: right? So uh, one of the, the the backing vocalists, Nona Hendrix, is probably who you heard there. Um, and let's see, Robert Palmer, Josie, or Jose Rossi. Two percussionists brought in, and then John Hassel on Trumpets and Horns. You probably heard him on that track. So, Q, I got I got treats, dude. I got a treat for you. So we're going to listen and watch. You won't be able to watch this at home here, but we're going to watch a, a clip from... We're going to pick up right after the guitar solo, but we're going to play a live recording from this very well-known concert that they did in Rome, Italy in 1980, that uh, it's considered like one of the best live rock performances ever filmed. Like it's known for that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you're gonna see what's cool about this is that um, you know you can't you can't pull this off on a stage without some additional musicians, right? just like with the studio. So they brought these these other um, musicians on the road with them. Uh, one of them was uh, funkadelic keyboardist Bernie Worrell. Bassist Busta Cherry Jones. Uh Asf- hey,
5: hang on, dude. Hang on. Busta Cherry? <laughs> come on now.
2: That's hey, you know. I didn't I didn't come up with that nickname. Go, go ahead. But his name is Busta Cherry Jones. <laughs> oh my god. He probably man. just goes by Cherry. But yeah, Busta Cherry. <laughs> um and it's the semi. Oh, okay. It's the semi, man. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh Ashford and Simpson, percussionist, Stephen Scales, and my favorite. You'll see why. Backing vocalist Dalet McDonald. So, let's pick this up right where we left off here with the guitar solo, and like, just uh, we'll we'll post the video either on Instagram or Twitter or something because you need to watch it, dude. I love this performance, man. It's amazing,
5: unbelievable.
2: Yeah, it's it's something to behold, dude. And you can just feel the energy in this arena, man. Like everybody's like floating around, basically, just the buzz, man. All right, so let's pick this up again. Like this is this is um, if you're going to listen to this song, this is the way to do it. All right, here we go. This again. This is Talking Heads live in 1980 in Rome, Italy, at the Paleor Arena.
5: the biggest bumps of the old goose dude (laughs) (laughs) it's hard not to to just be completely entranced by that big time chills dude at the beginning of that clip man yeah it's amazing like taking it all in yeah it's one of those things where like you think about
2: just a moment in time you know what i mean where it's like this was happening on the planet in 1980 december 18th 1980 in rome italy and like those people together you know what i mean and all the people in the in the room too. You don't forget them because they're just as as much, uh, you know, part of the energy and they're stuff. Part of that energy. Yeah, it's amazing, man.
5: I've had some of those, quite a few special moments like that at concerts. At dude, concerts, where, yeah, yeah, where just, everything is just like we're all in sync together. Yes,
2: and that's that's what I mean. Like when you watch this video, you can hear it too. You can hear the the crowd if you if you listen. But like just the, the energy, man, the buzz that's that's just happening in that arena, you know. I'm gonna you know quote that that guy again like they could have like powered the sun or whatever for
5: powered decades. the whole
2: world yeah yeah man but yeah what an amazing performance uh, the whole the whole you can watch the entire concert online um it it's out there but yeah man amazing so there was two two bass players up there because I mean Tina's up there playing bass and she's basically doing the really uh that that she just has this like sort of like this um this snaky sort of like bass line that she's just picking the entire time. And then you've got Busta, Q's favorite new musician, Busta Cherry, was also <laughs> on stage. You could see him uh, bouncing and hopping. Hopping and squirming. And then that was uh, hopping and squirming. And then, of course, that was um, Adrian on the guitar solos that you heard there. But yeah, just everything about it, man. And uh, the the prominent, prominent uh, female vocalist, uh that was featured there and you saw her right next to to David basically on stage. Uh her name is Dalette McDonald. And it's pretty interesting how she got involved. Basically, um you know Busta was into the new wave scene, which is interesting because he was like this um disco bass player guy for this band called the Bombers. And um she got involved um I think like musically with with him I think, as a background singer or something like that. And um, he basically vouched for her to David when they were looking for uh, musicians to join them on tour. And this interview that I read, this Rolling Stone interview, they go, did you know about their music at all, Talking Heads? And she's like, hell no. <laughs> I didn't know a damn thing. That's what she said. She's like, what the hell is a Talking Heads? Um, <laughs> but the, she basically says that um, the first time that she met the Talking Heads was at the rehearsal, right? So they... Basically like she says, like they they, they met me like like sight on scene, right? And like how cool, man. And then how she cool. you know, auditioned and, and basically they they basically took Busta's word for it that, that she was legit. And then she goes on and, and is like I said, she's standing right next to, to David and sharing the stage, which is another point of like what they were trying to do with this record was not make it about frontman
5: David and his giant suits, you know, on stage. (laughs) Um well and dude, and you can see her excitement and her enjoyment, dude. Yeah like in every frame. Yeah. Cause she's like, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. On stage with this
2: post punk. What is this no
5: yeah, what is this new wave stuff? Because
2: she's like a she was like a disco singer, you know? Yeah, man.
5: How exciting.
2: But yeah, really cool. I just I love everything about the story behind this record, like how it came together. Like like they were saying it's like it's it sounds like afro funk adjacent but it's not it's like it's it's an image it's it's interesting because they said they didn't want to imitate it uh but they were sort of using it as like the template and they ended up making this whole new sound right right where it's pulling in pieces of it like the polyrhythms and stuff well I like, like,
5: like how he said it was something like uh you know we didn't pull it off but we ended up making something completely different yeah and, which is what made it so so great you know
2: all right, I got one more track. So, those two tracks that I played, high, high energy, right? So, uh, this record was split kind of in that way. Uh, side one was Born Under Punches, a single called Cross Eyed and Painless, and then The Great Curve. Everything else was on side two. So, ba- Oh, and they're all about the same length, too.
5: So, that was well, obviously yeah, the, on a, a choice they made.
2: Well, the, yeah, and, you know, it's clearly a side A, side B. Uh, the vibes. vibes are totally different, yeah. Okay, um, cool. Because cross-eyed and painless, like basically these three songs on track on on side A are just one after the other. Like they're amazing. They're all coming at you with that high, high energy and stuff like that. And then side two starts with Once in a Lifetime, right? Which has kind of this different vibe. So anyway, we're gonna play um, another song here from side B, and this song is interesting, dude. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. So this song is called Seen and Not Seen.
5: Sometimes I like to wonder, dude, like, what music might sound like in 10 years. I hope it sounds like Remain in Light, dude. For real.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what made them – It's this is why the record was added to the National Registry, right? Uh, the way that, that they put it here um, was that – I'm just going to quote the the write-up that was included with it in the National Registry – Said It has been almost 40 years since Remaining Light was recorded and showed the world how its many music genres could be merged and complement each other. Its odd rhythms and overpowering beats always seem to reveal something new to the listener, no matter how many times you have heard it before. The album continues to hold up under scrutiny by each passing generation and still serves as a roadmap on how to meld the world's music together and dare to be different. And if there's anybody that dared to be different, it's David Byrne, right?
5: <laughs> yeah,
2: man. Still to this day. <laughs> yeah.
5: Let's go back and talk about that song, dude. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shit.
2: I really liked it. So that was another one of those like spoken word type things, right?
5: It's very eerie lyrics.
2: Yeah, like this guy like trying to imagine the, the face that he wants, you know.
5: Just the ideal yeah. face. And if he just thinks hard enough, maybe his face will change. And then he, then he steps back and thinks, you know what? I bet there's a lot of people that think these thoughts. Just like me,
2: but yeah, talk about like a—I uh, don't want to say a whiplash, but like a very, very different sound and and vibe and energy compared to what the first two songs, especially the Great Curve, right? But that's what makes this album so amazing, right? You go from like once in a lifetime is is the opener. Verse. I mean, talk about like a a tale of two sides, you know what I mean? <laughs> like side A of this record is just a banger. Yeah. And then side B starts with Once in a Lifetime, which is one of the most iconic songs of all time
5: with very bizarre lyrics as well. Yeah,
2: but like kind he was actually asked about why why does he think that 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 song struck a chord with so many people? He goes, "The the you may ask yourself repetitions and how did I get here? Sure struck a nerve with people and became very memorable." They did seem to speak to somewhat universal feelings and concerns. And then he goes on to say, like, but, you know, if I could predict how and why a song becomes popular, then, you know, I'd be a a much wiser person than most people in the music biz. (laughs) But he goes on to say that if if one's taste overlaps with that of the public or some part of them, then odds are one will get lucky once in a while. So there you go. David Byrne, 2017, when he was interviewed by the Library of Congress.
5: Awesome, dude. I ask myself questions all the time about how I got here or there.
2: Don't we all? That's kind of part (laughs) of life, right? Because you wake up one day and you're like, that's not my my fancy automobile or whatever. Right. Uh, Anyway.
5: Well, that was awesome, dude. I need to listen to the rest of the album, man.
2: Oh, yeah. But just obviously you don't need me to tell you this. Just push play on track one. Yeah. It's a fucking roller coaster for sure. And there's songs on on, on side B that, um, that are a little bit more, I don't know, they don't grab your attention quite as much as side A. But part of the experience, I guess. You know, not everything can be a great curve, cube
5: Amazing record, dude.
2: But the great curve, dude, holds up every time I hear that song. It's just so amazing.
5: I'm so glad that they decided to sacrifice their egos for mutual cooperation, dude.
2: Well, it sounds like that you know they may have they may have ended the band prematurely if, if they hadn't sort of reconciled their differences. I mean, they went out to put on put put out you know a few more records after after this, but they never like this this record is is unique and and it stands out amongst music in general. But like they never really made any song that sounded like, any any album that sounded like this after this, right?
5: It's just a special moment, man, in time.
2: It, it really is, especially because if you think about, had they not been in you know, the Bahamas on the vacation, the married couple, Tina and Chris, they may not have started to kind of experiment with this percussive stuff if hip hop and rap wasn't starting to take off, you know, that happening and, and them being sort of plugged into that, or at least David Byrne being kind of interested and like, hey, this is kind of new. Well, all of that stuff just came together to make this amazing this amazing record, you know?
5: And this is the stuff that we are excited about. When it comes to music, you know, like that, that's, that's the whole thing, dude. Like music is, is the gift that keeps on giving because the next time some random member of a band goes on vacation and hears something totally different, he's going to bring it back and incorporate it into, to their sound and might make something totally new just like this. Happens all the time.
2: Well, yeah, we talked about, and this is kind of a, this is kind of a sidetrack, but uh, we talked about that with um, Quantic how he basically is just a world traveler and he just he goes and purposely visits local record shops and stuff like that.
5: Yeah, a world traveling record collector who yeah. happens to be a really awesome producer. Right. That's gonna yeah, that's gonna lead to some really cool sounds. But that's that's what it's all about.
2: And and I, I don't I don't think any any new wave or post punk band uh incorporated uh, you know afro beat and and funk and and all that kind of world worldly percussive stuff quite like like talking heads did on this record like it's 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 one of a kind really amazing all right man well that was it dude what a great record check it out um it's called remain in light you won't be disappointed it's gonna wrap it up here q for our our coverage of one of the greatest bands of all
5: time talking heads and uh, what are we doing next week q Oh nothing special except we've got an amazing guest. Oh that's right. Something very special. <laughs> <laughs> so through um
2: just luck of, of 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 knowing somebody who has connections um and by connections I mean it's uh this person is related to somebody who writes for Rolling Stone. And this is a coworker of mine. Uh shout out to Taylor. We were just talking one day and she's like, hey, you know, my my uncle writes for Rolling Stone. In fact, he's a senior writer at Rolling yeah. Stone. You know, I, was, I basically was like, could you repeat that? Squeeze me. Yeah. <laughs> could you repeat that, please? So this guy's name is David Brown. He is a writer for Rolling Stone, senior writer for Rolling Stone. He's been in the biz for a long, long time, and he's written several biographies on on bands, one of which was essentially like the definitive biography of Sonic Youth. And that is what we're going to talk with him about uh, next week. We've actually already recorded the the
5: interview. It was amazing. Uh, He's like an encyclopedia, basically. I'm excited to get this out, dude. Uh, Yeah, so the book is called Goodbye 20th Century. And this book has inspired me to seek out more musical biographies because it was such a fun read. And we cover... Three albums with him, so we focus on the Geffen years. So their first major label signage. So we're we're gonna dive into Goo, Dirty, and Experimental Jet Set. So uh can't stress enough how excited we are to share this this episode with you all. Um man, dude, we got Marky Moon, Remain in Light. Now we're bringing some Sonic
2: Youth. And the funny thing is, dude, like we, we actually talk about with David that exact like scene, you know, the New York CBGB, new
5: wave, post-punk origins and stuff like that. He was there, man. So, yeah, I guess I won't give too much away. But yeah, he he was in the East Village of New York City and he moved there in 1978. So he was there. Yeah, he was. He was there right when it happened.
2: All right. So that's next week. And then I'm not sure what we're going from there, Q, but we'll figure it out. Um we are approaching our 300th episode and we do have 200 ah, <laughs> boy oops are you sure yes 200 all right we're approaching our 200th episode and so we got we got some interesting plans for that so be on the lookout
5: that's i
2: that's another thing i'm
5: really excited about what is that
2: a couple months from now uh dude
5: it's no it's gonna be here before you know it well we got we can't just let that f- slip by dude Oh, we're, we're notoriously bad. Oh wait, I think I pinned it to our Slack, dude. Dude, smart. I pinned it to our Slack, brother. November 8th. Okay. All right, so we got a little bit we got a little bit of time for that. And we've got another guest planned for that one, so that's going to be a lot of fun too. Oh, and hey, dude, let's give it let's give a quick shout out. So, uh I pretty much forgot that we had a Twitter account, dude. <laughs> Since we joined Instagram. Dude, once we
2: went to Instagram,
5: Twitter was just in the rear view, dude. Yeah. And I guess Twitter just decided, you know what? They haven't hopped on here in weeks. I'm not even going to give him a notification because I did not get any notification about this uh, message, but uh, we posted about, Hey, we're on Instagram now. Uh, that was the last post we did on Twitter. And, uh, about two weeks ago, we got a reply from one of our listeners. His name's Kenny. Oh God. I'm sorry, Kenny. Uh, Uh, his name is kenny his name's name's (laughs) kenny uh sorry you know what based on your message kenny Kenny, you know your last name and yeah and it sounds like you're you've been listening to us for a while so you know the struggles that we go through trying to pronounce people's last names on here what am i a linguist no you're not dude no but uh so kenny writes i'm disappointed at the at the news that we were leaving twitter the twins give positive vibes to Twitter in these perilous times. You know, we still give positive vibes on Instagram. Yeah, I don't want to to, to force you to, to join Instagram to to stay in the loop, Kenny, but we just weren't getting a lot of love on Twitter, you know? Like, I just did I wasn't feeling it. Apparently, we were, Q. Apparently, we were sending positive vibes out there. People were digging them.
2: We just didn't hear from any of you, you know? Yeah,
5: I wish that I knew that. So... Thank you Kenny for those kind words. Um yes.
2: Sorry that we um that we that we left you left you hanging on Twitter with with no more positive vibes.
5: Lesson learned though. Give us a shout out and let us know what you think. That way we don't make this mistake again uh down the line and just bail on Instagram too. Give us a shout out, let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear from you. Give us suggestions on bands to cover, albums to cover. That's This is why we do the show, is to to interact with and start dialogues with other music lovers. That's what it's all about. So, yes, uh, follow us on Instagram, at nofillerpodcast. And you can also find us on the Pantheon Podcast Network, the podcast for music lovers. That is our home. That is our family. We've got dozens upon dozens of awesome music-related podcasts on the network. You can find us there, pantheonpodcasts.com. And as always, big shout-out to AKG for supporting the show. Thank you, as always. And that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are chatting with David Brown. We're talking all things Sonic Youth. Check back with us next week for that. Until then, thank you as always for listening. My name is Quentin.
2: My name is Travis. Y'all take care.
0: households that start the year with peloton are still active a year later 92 percent because of a bike not just bikes we also make treadmills and roars oh let me guess for elite athletes only